it's good to start with sort of where Apollo came from. And what Apollo is, and I'm wearing it on my chest here too, is it's a little device that we developed out of my research at the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Psychiatry studying PTSD and depression disorders that weren't getting better and people who had severe trauma. And, and we developed the device to tap into the natural safety responses in the body by delivering soothing vibrations to us anywhere on the body that feel like soothing touch. So we figured out in the lab between 2016 and 2018 how to create vibration patterns that actually induce that similar state to soothing touch that just constantly activates that safety part of our brains that just helps us feel more present and calm and safe in our own bodies. And that is like, it's, it works kind of, it, for PTSD, it works kind of like wearable exposure therapy. It just gives you constant embodied safety cues while you're in a situation that might appear threatening, but it's not actually threatening to your survival. Hi everyone, welcome to Psychedelic Conversations. Today I have Dr. Ray Rabin in the house. So good to have you and thank you for creating this time to be with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It, the pleasure is all ours over the across the pond. And also um, I was really excited to find out about the product, which we will go into in a moment, Apollo Neuro. And for the context for our listeners, I'd like to share a little bit of your background and then we can dive in. Dr. Dave Rabin is um, a board-certified psychiatrist, neuroscientist, and co-founder and chief medical officer of Apollo Neuroscience. He is also um, inventor and tech entrepreneur and has been studying the impact of chronic stress in humans for over 15 years. In addition, focusing on integration therapy, plant and natural medicines, couples therapy, and medicine-assisted psychotherapy. And he specializes in treatment-resistant mental illnesses, including depression, anxiety, and PTSD. This is incredible, and I'm really excited to be talking to you more about some of these findings. And also, I'm aware of your um, recent studies, um, if you're happy to go into it. Uh, maybe later stages of our conversation. Sure. For now, what brings you to this space, Dr. Dave? What was it? Uh, well, I think it started when I was really young. I used to have very vivid dreams as a kid, even the ages of as far back as I can remember, like four, four through seven. And, you know, I, I think these dreams were always interesting to me because they felt very real as a kid. And I would, and I know lots of people now have had these kinds of experiences, but at the time we didn't really talk about this with anybody else. So it just seemed like it was me and I was having conversations with my brothers or friends, you know, later. And I would mention something that happened that we did together. And then they would have no idea what I was talking about. And I immediately realized that that was something that happened when I was dreaming, not in our actual lives. And that 
uh, over time, as I started to have more of these experiences and particularly nightmares, which were really scary, you know, I asked my parents, you know, what are these, what are these experiences that I'm having? And they said, oh, they're just, they're just dreams. You know, they can't, they can't hurt you. There's, don't worry about it. They're not real. And I think at the time I completely understand why they tried to explain it to me that way, but I kept having these experiences and over time it made me question because of how real they felt to me. It just made me question, you know, what does this word real mean? And so that's kind of where the interest in the brain and perception at its very, my very earliest ages started. Um, and I was always interested in the brain because the brain seemed to be like the source of consciousness and the way we think about the world. And, uh, and so as I started to learn more about the brain and start to do research into neuroscience, I realized that consciousness was actually very challenging to study. And so I went into studying chronic stress because stress impacts the way we perceive the world in so many different ways. And as I started to see that, I started to be really fascinated by people who were at the top, tip top of their game, like Michael Jordan or elite Navy SEALs or, you know, people who are just like reaching a level of human ability that is just so in incredibly and universally impressive, um, where the whole world looks at these people and is like, wow, look at that person, you know? And then there are other people who, of course, develop mental illness and really struggle and sometimes they're the same people, right? Like military veterans uh, can be at the top of their game and be some of the most incredible specimens of human performance ever. And then they come back to civilian life and they really struggle. And so this became interesting to me to to look at why and how do, does the way that we experience stress impact, because both groups are experiencing tons of stress right? It's just about the way that we experience stress. It seemed to be interesting to me and how our approach to it and the, and the safety around the environment that we experience it in actually impacts how directly how that stress takes shape in our bodies and whether it causes higher function and ad adaptation or dysfunction and disease. Uh, and so I was, you know, really interested in that did research in that in the cellular and cellular level with human neural stem cells and uh, in dementia disorders and vision. And then around 2012, I read about how uh, one of my good friends sent me 10 papers on the be the most interesting psychedelic research. And I read those papers and within 36 hours, I realized that I needed to be, become a psychiatrist and study consciousness again and really focus on um, what I had learned from the stress world, but also bringing that into the consciousness and mental health world. And that was 2012. And from there, a lot of the research that we came up with and published now started. That is wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing. I love the personal stories because we all have this personal entry point into everything we do and it becomes the mission and the purpose and the meaning of everything we do. So I really appreciate that. Um, when I was at the psychedelic conference, uh, science, uh, psychedelic science conference in Colorado, uh, we went upstairs to have a look at you know some of the uh, the uh, exhibit exhibition um, hall where the you know everybody was there, and you had a really impressive uh, team, and everything was amazing. And I heard, oh, yeah, so many people talk about it. Um, 
almost everyone I was um, having conversations during that time were um, there's always, you know, bringing up the Apollo uh, device, Apollo neuro device, which I have it as well here with me. And thank you so much for having me this device to explore. So um, um, I listened to, as I was investigating into more of the device, I love what you say about um, one of your webinars. I think I came across, you said, this device can really help you make the body feel safe. And that touch, that feeling uh, really resonated with me as a, my background is in trauma-informed therapy. And that really spoke to me, um, especially um, knowing what we know about trauma and how it impacts people. Sometimes they don't have the means or the uh, you know opportunities to go and um, invest in such you know expensive clinics and um, go through uh, some of these really expensive treatments. And I think this is something that we could all access. And um, beginning of our conversation, you just said, "Why don't you try it?" I always thought I don't need it because I've I felt like I've done a lot of work and I've I came through and I feel like I have a really regulated nervous system at the point at this point in time and you said to me why don't you just try it It just makes you feel so good so that brings me to ask you about the the device neuro uh, um, the apollo neuro and also maybe we can bring in the trauma piece to it as well just like you did i thought that was very powerful sure yeah i think it's it's good to start with the sort of where apollo came from and what and what Apollo is, and I'm wearing it on my chest here too, is it's a little device that we developed out of my research at the University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Psychiatry studying PTSD and depression disorders that weren't getting better and people who had severe trauma. And we were trying to under and, and we developed the device basically, as you said, to tap into the natural safety responses in the body by delivering soothing vibrations to us anywhere on the body that feel like soothing touch and that soothing touch sends safety signals to our emotional brain that says just like getting a hug or having somebody you like hold your hand when you're having a bad day it instantly makes us feel better because it taps into these hardwired pathways that have existed in us since for hundreds of millions of years probably back to the most ancient mammals that nurse first nurse their young because when you first give birth to a new offspring baby your your infant doesn't have the ability to understand your speech yet and so the only language that it really understands in terms of communication of safety is to soothe it is touch and so touches are and and sometimes like you know calm soothing whispers and things like that but in general touch is the fastest way to that safety pathway and we figured that out because um ultimately in 2016 or so, I met Rick Doblin for the first time in person, and we had a really great conversation about how uh, we it would be important to start to look at the mechanism of how MDMA-assisted therapy is working. Because MDMA-assisted therapy, I'm sure many of your, your uh, listeners are familiar with, is one of the most powerful and effective treatments for PTSD that we've ever seen to date. Um, and it's inducing these long-term improvements in PTSD in people who have never responded to basically any other treatment uh, in just 12 weeks with 42 hours of psychotherapy and just three doses of medicine. 
And that's really interesting because we've never seen treatment results and outcomes like that from any treatment for PTSD, let alone with just three doses and 42 hours of psychotherapy. And so in 2016, uh, Rick was willing uh, to, and graciously so, to um, allow us to start to study the mechanism of MDMA. And uh, he got me and three of my colleagues allowed us to get MDMA uh, trained. And I'm also trained in ketamine-assisted therapy, which is very similar um, using a different molecule. But ultimately, we in the training and from the research that had been done up until that point, everything about the way MDMA was working seemed to be by activating safety pathways molecularly in the brain. And that when you help people feel this radically safe experience, which is the medicine ampl molecularly amplifies the experience of the therapy, the safety of the patient-doctor-clinician relationship, um, which is a trusting relationship. And that trust creates, a, it seems like it creates like a foundation of safety that gets amplified by the MDMA. And that allows people to feel safe enough to go back and reevaluate the meaning of traumatizing events that have happened to them in the past and to reshape that meaning which is really, really interesting. It's basically, if you feel safe enough to, which we've known about in, psycho, in psychotherapy for a long time, but the idea being basically, if you feel safe enough to go back and reevaluate past traumatic memories that are extremely painful and bring those up to the surface where they can be worked with, then you can remake meaning around them and heal them. And that's effectively what MDMA is doing through the molecular safety pathway. So we thought, well, if MDMA is activating that, that pathway molecularly, what activates that pathway naturally? And soothing touch was the top candidate of all of the pathways. Soothing music does it. Um, you can do it with light. You can do it with lots of different things, but soothing touch seems to be the one. And breath will do it. Soothing touch is the number one fastest way there through the body that doesn't require any effort. And so we figured out in the lab between 2016 and 2018, how to create vibration patterns that actually induce that similar state to soothing touch that all that just constantly activates that safety part of our brains that just helps us feel more present and calm and safe in our own bodies. And that is like, it's it works kind of, for PTSD, it works kind of like wearable exposure therapy. It just gives you constant embodied safety cues while you're in a situation that might appear threatening, but it's not actually threatening to your survival. That is very powerful. This is why it, um, I was intrigued to learn more. Um, so this device is wearable. Um, you can, as you, as we can see, it's on your shirt. You can wear it as a, on your wrist. And I've seen a longer strap for the, I guess, for the ankle. Um, there are various ways of wearing them. Why, uh, what would be the best part of the body to wear? Is it wrist or is it, does it matter? I, everybody has different preference. Um, I think most of our users overall wear Apollo on their ankle. Um, I'm usually during every night I wear Apollo on my ankle because I keeps it's like out of my immediate uh, immediate uh, awareness and I don't notice and, and like I don't wear things I don't like to wear things on my wrist when I'm sleeping. So, uh, but during the day I wear it on my chest because it's just this really nice central experience. And and Apollo is a is a consumer wearable device, by the way, it's not a medical device. 
um, because when we were doing the research on it in the real world, we start, you're supposed to start with healthy subjects, which we did. And what we found was that as well as it seemed to work for people who had PTSD, we actually saw it working for us and for all of our friends and family and colleagues. And so um, when we did like 3000 uh, case studies in the real world over two two years uh, with wearable prototypes. And so that helped us understand that this was actually something that was safe enough to be a consumer device because the vibration patterns that are in Apollo are known in the literature to not have any adverse reactions. So it's, so you can use it to, and we effectively made it to, to regulate people's circadian cycles. So there's like, uh, which is your sleep and wake cycles, which are the most important foundation of health in the body. And so the uh, Apollo has like seven different vibes that you can choose from, which are effectively different songs for your nervous system. And each one helps to nudge you into a different energy and mood state. So emotional state. So the most energizing one is called energy. And then going down in energy from there to more calming is social, which is great for like creative social flow, kind of feels like a glass of champagne when you're out with your friends. Uh, and then going down from there is focus and then recover and going down from there gets into the more sleepy vibes, which are like calm, which is great for, and we've shown augments access to meditative states. Uh, and then, um, unwind, which is deeply relaxing anything before bed and then sleep. And you can schedule them throughout the day to actually turn on automatically for you. So you just set it, set the, or you fill out a quick survey, um, about your chronotype and then it assigns you a schedule that actually regulates your entire sleep and wake cycles and keeps you focused and energized during the day when you want to be. Um, and so people actually use less substances as a result, like alcohol and other sleep aids and stimulants and caffeine. People actually use less of those when they use Apollo, which is really interesting. Um, that's great. Thank you for walking us through the practical side of it. So there is an app, I believe you need to download the app and then set that's how you enter your settings i guess or is yeah. there another way of um is that how we work with yeah. it mm -hmm. yep and you said there are no adverse side effects because i know our listeners would be interested is there anything is there any downside is there anything that they should be cautious of if they're interested in opting for one uh, there's nothing particular to be cautious of. We haven't seen any adverse reactions from apollo um again it's designed like music. And so similar to music, the thing that you want to be aware of is that you don't want to turn it up all the way right when you start playing it, because that's jarring to the body and it doesn't sound very good. So it's always better to start low uh, at, you know, a gentle, a gentle intensity or volume where you just barely notice it and then gradually turn it up over time as you, as you wish, but it should never be distracting to the body or to your brain. So that's the so that's kind of like the guidance that we give people. It has the same side effects as listening to music too loud, uh, except it doesn't mess with your ears. So it's just like you know can so the being mindful about the intensity and the volume, just like you would with a with a song, is the most important thing. Um, and the app allows you to do all of the controls that I mentioned earlier, and you can it works for Android and iOS and etc. Okay, and that's that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. 
Did I tell you about the psychedelic uh, studies that we're doing? Uh, no, you haven't. So I'm really looking forward to digging into those as well. Please share some of those studies and uh, we'll, we'll we'll dive into it. Well, so the, the two that I wanted to mention, which are actually ongoing right now, are that, you know, I mentioned that Apollo came out of the our research on MDMA and the safety pathway uh, with PTSD. And so we actually now have done some early PTSD studies that have had very promising results. And Rick, Rick Doblin uh, was, you know, we were talking about the results and he said, you know, we should, in, we should figure out a way to include this in the, uh, or, you know, after the MDMA trial with MAPS so that we can start to understand uh, if adding different tools to the integration period would actually induce longer term remission from PTSD, better long term results. And so we actually got that study approved. Um, which is really exciting and, and making Apollo the, the only wearable that is being studied with psychedelic therapy uh, in, you know, conjunction with the MAPS trial. And then we also have a ketamine therapy, two ketamine therapy trials, one of which is ongoing in British Columbia right now with Dr. Pam Criscow, uh, who's a leading psychiatrist there with the Roots to Thrive study, which is very interesting. It's group therapy with ketamine uh, with traumatized first responders with severe PTSD. This is this is absolutely amazing. Congratulations. Um I'm excited because coming from a therapy background, these are the these are the things, the progressive, you know, news that I love hearing about. And I think I've already um saw in the very early, I think when when it was um I can't remember when I came across this device. I wasn't sure you were the person behind it, but I think somebody shared about incorporating it with the microdosing protocols. Have you heard, have you had anyone, did you have any data around that? We don't have any data around that yet. We have had lots of people report to us that they've done it. Um, but what's interesting, since you mentioned microdosing, is that Apollo, a lot of people have said that Apollo feels a lot like a microdose. And actually, the two people that are really interesting that you might know, uh, Dr. Jim Fadiman, who de developed the term microdosing, um, was one of the most recent person who put Apollo on and said, this feels like a wearable microdose. Uh, and uh, then Paul Austin, who is a good friend and colleague who also works with Jim, early, like two years ago said that when he first started using it uh, in the early days, it was, it was 2020 on our first interview. So it's really interesting because it, what a microdose is it, of a psychedelic is a what we call a sub-threshold experience that just slightly changes things in your mind-body molecularly, but you're not supposed to really notice it. It's kind of supposed to be in the background. And most people microdose much higher because they like to feel it. But the whole idea of microdosing in general is that you don't really notice that you're that you've taken anything. You forget that you've taken something. And so the idea of uh, Apollo is also the same in that it's made to just kind of vibrate in the background, which is why the intensity is so important to think about. And that that constant stimulation in the background most people use it about three to four hours a day which we've seen gets the best results in our trials but using people who use it in the background just get that constant kind of 
stimulation that helps to soothe the body more throughout the day. And so the combination of the two people have reported is really nice. Um, but people are also using it before, during, and after ketamine therapy experiences right now in a number of clinics across the U.S., which is really interesting um, because it's one of the biggest reasons why people don't have good ketamine experiences is that they are anxious going into the experience or they're worried about something going into the experience. And it doesn't really matter what they're worried about, but their, wor their worry will, will result in them trying to control or analyze the experience or overthink it. And that can disrupt the whole experience. And so a lot of these clinicians are using Apollo to help just 15 minutes before they go in, just, just calm their bodies so that they're more willing and able to drop in and, you know, let go within the experience. That is beautiful. Um, so in my experience, we do a lot of, um, we do a lot of guidance in trauma healing with microdosing. I don't know if you ever come across that kind of work. We have done some of that. And in those uh, experiences, some of the um, participants may feel irregulated in their nervous system. Sometimes the anxiety is amplified a little bit. And um, it's like Dr. James Fadiman would say, it's probably was there already and the microdosing probably amplified or at least revealed the intensity of the anxiety. I have um so the the idea here is a light bulb moment is that this could be a great device incorporation with those people and also um some people who are opting for microdosing to taper off their SSRIs um they feel really irregulated and you know feel uncomfortable there's a real discomfort in that tapering off process and I feel like this could be a good device in again incorporating in that process what are your thoughts on that yeah, absolutely. And we, we have seen many people, probably at this point, thousands of people who have worked with their clinicians to their prescribing clinicians to, you know, figure out how to taper off of their medication that they didn't want to take by, you know, help having support from tools like Apollo. So that's been really promising. And we've seen some of those findings come out of our clinical trials as well, um, where people are just taking less as needed prescription medication. Um, and particularly like sedatives and hypnotics and th things like Adderall um, that really are helpful when used intentionally, but when we end up prescribing them, you know, for daily use, they can have a lot, cause a lot of harm that we don't realize in the moment, but we end up seeing down the road with our patients. And so um, giving people any alternative that can help them to just take less medication every day uh, is certainly something that makes our jobs easier as psychiatrists. Yes, definitely agree. And the other thing comes to my mind, it feels like this could be in, in maybe integration tool for people who unfortunately go to these retreats and they get blown out with their nervous system and they come back really uh, dysregulated and uh, could be maybe incorporated in bringing them back into more uh, their baseline and regulation, I guess. Yeah, that's something that we're we're very interested in because we've seen a lot of people use Apollo for that specific purpose, and that actually helped to inspire the MAP study for integration with M after MDMA. So, I think there's a huge potential because there really aren't any tools right now to help facilitate integration. I mean, there's some journaling apps and things like that, but there's not any technological tools that just help get the body into a state that is more, it's more easy and 
able to integrate some of these challenging experiences we might have had and finding a good therapist to do that with can also be really tough. So, um, you know, there's a lot of benefit to having tools like this that just help the body recover. And we see it too, because you can, you can measure it. We see it in HRV going up over time as a sign of recovery and sleep. We see people getting like within three months of using this, people are getting like up to 30 minutes more sleep a night that's concentrated in deep in REM and HRV is going up and resting heart rates coming down. And so there are clear signs, not just how people are psychologically reporting they feel, but their bodies are actually showing signs of being more recovered just from having this kind of like parasympathetic vagal stimulus more of the time getting better sleep. Yeah, this is a this is great information. Thank you for sharing. And what we would like to do is to add a add the webinar that you shared. Uh, I thought it was really helpful for our listeners because just because of the time re uh, restraints, we will not go into the the vagal tone and how it does what it does. And uh, we will instead add that webinar link into the show notes so that people can investigate further if they are interested in. So one last question about the device again uh, so my thinking brain th saying okay so we are always striving to help people become really agent become self-agent and 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 hopefully eventually move away from anything that is codependent that creates codependency would you say that um, maybe with a rigorous work incorporating psychedelic medicines just because we know how they are powerful in rewiring uh, the pathways and maybe incorporating this device together. Do you think it can teach the body to learn how to stay safe eventually after long time use, or at least using it rigorously in the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what we've been seeing. So we've had the device in the market for three years. We've had 1300 people at least that we've been in tracking for particular studies using biometric wearables for almost that three year entire three year time frame. And so, and we track usage from over a hundred thousand people, how they're using the device over time, how much, how much intensity. And what's really interesting is as people use it, they use it, they start, especially people with PTSD and with who are struggling with mental illness, but in general, people start using it more and they're using it in the beginning, like three to five hours a day. And then they gradually still keep using it, but they gradually decrease their use and they make it more, it's more intentional and their intensity level, which is the best sign, their intensity level that they require to, uh, and, and enjoy on the device gets turned down over time. So people become more sensitive to the experience over time, not desensitized to it. And so there is a learning effect that happens. And the reason why we think this happens is because of the way that cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure, uh, prolonged exposure works, right? And you're probably very familiar with that. And the reason why that works is because you're exposing people to the trigger that makes them feel afraid, but you have them experience that in a safe environment. And if you can make the environment safe for somebody, then they can actually feel safe enough to experience a whole lot of things. And each time they do, it, re it rewires the brain without any medicine at all, just by inducing a natural learning state of reassociation of what used to be thought of as threatening or fearful to something that is now known to be safe because you've experienced enough times in a safe environment. So 
that's that's effectively what Apollo is doing. It's a, it's it works by safety embod, embodied safety in wherever we are in the world because I can't go with you everywhere and your therapist can't go with you everywhere, but this can. And so that was basically why we developed it was to try to give people something they could take between appointments that trained the body and taught the body how to enter these states more effectively on their own, which is really cool. Yes. And this is where my interest is heightened because I'm always the one to, how do we help people become agent? How do we help people move away from the codependency of, like you said, therapy? How can we get people out of therapy for like decades, five years, 10 years? It's just so sad to, you know, look at this case by case studies, the, um, the treatment resistant to, uh, especially after the pandemic, we are experiencing heightened levels of people really, you know, coming into more in need of um, solutions. I think this is great. Uh, well, definitely I'll be trying it myself and I'll probably be reporting back. Um, as we're coming to, towards the end of our conversation, Dr. Dave, could you also speak to us about your other study on um, the idea of cannabinoids, a clinical framework for the uh, opioid epidemic? I find that really interesting too. And is this something new? And um, if you can talk to us about that, please. I would love to. Uh, so this is a manuscript that I've been working on with my colleagues at the Board of Medicine, uh, which is a nonprofit medical board that is effectively focused on providing evidence-based guidelines for how to better use and utilize different medicines for different treatments. And we mostly focus on unregulate, currently unregulated medicines. And a lot of those medicines include plant medicines and psychedelics, but also supplements and then also things that are non-medical-based treatments that don't have guidance around them, like wearables, for instance. Um, and things like touch therapy, somatic therapy, there isn't really a lot of guidance around best practices for any of these things. And so starting with the biggest crisis that we're facing in the United States right now, other than the mental health crisis itself, is the opioid crisis. And, you know, opioids are known to be widely overprescribed and they cause tremendous harm in the communities that they are in. And we've known about that for thousands of years. You know, the, there, there was an opium uh, war in China um, that where the Chinese, the Chinese sank the opium ship because it was destroying their communities. And so it was very, very clear that there is a um, that, that, that there's a history of these medicines in particular being abused and misused. And specifically, we're talking, there's lots, but we're talking about opioid narcotics. And it doesn't mean they're all bad, but it does mean that they're not used properly. And, they sh and, and the evidence says they shouldn't be prescribed for chronic use. They should be prescribed for short-term use, for acute pain and things that are, you know, things where people need a, a certain amount of time, like a week or two to heal and recover from, um, from different surgeries and things like that. So ultimately we see that if you look at the pattern of prescription rates and why people get addicted to opioids today compared to in like the 1970s, 80, I think 80% of people currently who get addicted to opiate opioids and who meet criteria for opioid use disorder are actually starting with prescription medication not with heroin from the street. And they start with prescription medication and they wind up 
eventually oftentimes using heroin because they get their prescriptions cut off and then they don't have an alternative that they know how to access. And so this is a, again, a huge problem. Um, and so we decided to focus on that first and then dive into what are the known ways that people have used to treat opiates and what other safe natural tools are there. And the one that really rose to the surface, this started about five and a half years ago, was cannabis because cannabis addresses pain issues for a lot of people. And people have been using cannabis for treating pain for actually probably over a hundred years in different formulations. Uh, and it used to be legal back in the 1800s. And so in the United States for medical use. And so we lost that for many, many years because there was a, unfortunately, like a politicalized race war against plant medicines and indigenous plants and drug and uh, psychedelic drugs. And that unfortunately led to the, um, you know, people know basically no research into cannabis, but more recently there has been some great, good research and good research on a population based scale that has shown that the introduction of cannabinoid uh, cannabinoids into different environments for sale, the opening of dispensaries and things like that. And the surveying of those population populations show that many people who are using cannabis for pain are taking less opioid narcotics at, by a huge percentage. And there's a lot more research that needs to be done, but there's enough evidence now based on the amount of research that has been done to finally put out guidelines to the community that says, this is, if you're treating a person with chronic pain and you're treating a person or with opioid use disorder or who is on opioids, but wants to come off of them, they're act we actually know enough to safely guide you. And we put together the evidence and, and wrote it up in a table so that people can just print out this table and put it on their, you know, on the wall of their office. And when they need to actually look at, you know, what cannabinoids can I recommend to people at what doses for what purpose for pain or opioid use disorder, they can actually just see it. It's right there. It's evidence-based. And we then, if they want to recommend products to people that are safe, that are not psychoactive, that have been tested and are legal to ship across state lines, we have those products listed on our website. We've already vetted them for everybody. So you can just literally if you're a doctor, if you don't, if you know, to avoid giving somebody opioids, you now have a direct path to an alternative that has been vetted by an, by a multiple independent third parties. And that's never been done for plant medicine before. So in the United States. So for, for us, this is a huge opportunity to actually make a dent in this very significant uh, public health issue and to save a lot of lives. Yes, absolutely. And we're very much aware of the opioid addictions and everything. Uh, following a lot of traumatologists and the people that are working rigorously in this space. Yeah, I'm very much aware of that too. Um, so uh, when would this be you know, proposed? How how are you going to uh, make this public and how can we educate more um, people on this specific you know, study that you are working on? The, the, cannab the cannabis work? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, so the cannabis work is actually a review of all the literature up until this point. So we just, we were able to build a consensus with leading experts in the field and it's really called like a consensus perspective. So we didn't actually do the primary research. The primary research is really challenging to do still to this day because cannabis is still considered to be a schedule one drug. So it's very, very challenging to do good research on cannabis. There is more happening now than ever, but it's still very hard. 
And so we just went back and took all the evidence to date and then put that together for people to say, okay, we know enough how to use this safely. It's not about understanding the entire mechanism of cannabis. We'll get there, right? There's more research being done into that. There's more research being done into which cannabinoids at what doses, et cetera. But we know enough to provide safe guidelines, going back to the original theme of our conversation, about how we can safely educate patients to avoid the greater harm of opioid misuse and abuse and the addictive capacity that they have. And my and my training is actually in addiction psychiatry. So this is very near and dear to my heart. And uh, a lot of my patients struggled to recover from disorders like PTSD because they were prescribed opiates in the past and just couldn't come off of them because they were so addictive. And so ultimately that paper is published. It's out into the world. It just was published last week. Um, and it's had some great press already um, in coverage and other journals. So the main thing is it's it's an open access publication. So in harm reduction journal, anybody can access it. You don't need to be a doctor or a scientist. You can literally just go uh, to the Board of Medicine website um, and click on the Clinical Cannabis Initiative or click on the link to the paper. There's a couple of different links in there. And you can look at it yourself and understand it. You know, we wrote it for everybody to be able to understand. And then that... Uh, that table with the instructions and guidance, any doctor can just download and put in their office and, you know, be able to use that to help them provide better care to their clients. Yeah, that's wonderful. And we'll be adding those links for sure in the show notes. I think my question is always, we need those kind of doctors as well to be on board, I guess. Um, why I say that, because I'd like to take your, uh, you know, thoughts on what are you seeing, where we headed as our last discussion point in the psychedelic renaissance? What are you observing? And maybe some of the important things you might like to share with us. So I think the, you know, I think there's a lot of exciting stuff happening uh, in the psychedelic space. Uh, there's a lot of things that people, exciting research that's happening. Um, there's also a lot of waste of money into things that are not particularly uh, helpful to the community. And that's just the way it always is. Um, but I think if I was, you know, if I was going to leave everybody with one thing that's really exciting, um, that I think is one of the more hopeful things about where we're headed is that um, we actually, so I put together, you mentioned Rachel Yehuda earlier, and, you know, Rachel has been a wonderful mentor to me as well. And um, and I really respect her work. And, and so in 2016, uh, Ben Kelmendi, who is one of the leading professors in the psychedelic world at Yale, uh, and a good friend and colleague, and I both had epigenetic backgrounds, and we had been following Rachel's work. And, you know, Rachel showed us that, ep that trauma induces epigenetic changes on our DNA, meaning in simple terms that our, our DNA is the same in every cell and uh, except our sperm and eggs, and every other cell in our body has exactly the same DNA code, the same genetic code. But there's a way those cells know to act and be different, right? Like our skin knows how to be skin and our brain knows how to be brain, and those are different kinds of cells. And the reason why is because there's another layer of code on top of the DNA called epigenetic code. And that code basically tells our cells what to turn up and what to turn down on the DNA to make sure skin is more skin than brain and brain is more brain than skin. Does that make sense? Yes, so, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So Rachel showed over 40 years of research that uh, for the first time, 
in in to, that I know that it was proven was that traumatic events cause changes to cortisol receptor genes, for instance, and the, that gets recorded in the epigenetic code. And what and so we've seen that these powerful traumatic events actually induce changes on that code on receptors that are known to be, you know, not functioning the way that we thought they were in the way they're supposed to in PTSD and depression. And so she started studying Holocaust survivors to understand this, but then this has now been replicated in trauma, uh, trauma models in mice and rats and showing that they're uh, epigenetic changes that happen on these cortisol receptor genes get passed down over generations, which is really interesting. And that you can extinguish those epigenetic changes, meaning you can repair them or, or build, make them back to normal by giving reach safety retraining experiences, like the exposure therapy we talked about earlier to the, to the animal models. So I thought, well, with Ben, what if MDMA-assisted therapy in the MAPS model is actually capable of, of inducing so much safety that it reverses or repairs some of the epigenetic changes on these cortisol receptor genes in people who are traumatized. And so uh, Ben thought this was an interesting idea. And then we, we went to Rick and, and we built a team with some, with, uh, some folks at USC and, uh, and with Rachel and MAPS um, and Arizona State. And we, uh, led by Candace Lewis, and we really uh, we, we were able to sample all of the people who, or not all of the people, but a good number of people who are going through the MDMA therapy trial before and after their MDMA experience. And then we were able to compare their epigenetic code after to before. And what we showed was that MDMA assisted therapy was actually reversing in just 12 weeks, these markings in the epigenetic code on the, these cortisol receptor genes. And that the amount of change was correlated with the amount of healing people got. The, the improved outcome, the people with the best outcomes had the most change on their cortisol receptors at this site. And so now we have, so we start to have an understanding of we can reverse trauma. We can reverse the, the impact of, of the recording of trauma on our bodies and that where that's stored, which is not just in the way our neurons are talking to each other, it's also in the DNA that is in those neurons and in our whole bodies that regulates our body's entire stress response. And so that if we can understand that those can change, then there's a lot of hope for healing for mental illness, right? It means that, that we actually could potentially find a cure for people by tracking their epigenetic changes over time at these different receptor sites and understand what a, what a signature of, of illness is and what a signature of health is. And we, we're we starting to really understand what the signature, the epigenetic signature of illness is as we do more studies with psychedelics and different other therapies like Apollo, which is currently being done at the VA, doing a similar epigenetics trial, um, we'll be able to see what how other treatments modify these different epigenetic sites and how how likely people are to respond to different treatments to actually get better which will really you know completely change uh, mental health treatment in the next 5 to 10 years which is really exciting i think this is the best thing i've heard in the last few months because i'm very much involved in the whole trauma and rachel yehuda has been my online mentor always follow her work and this is honestly the best news i've heard so we uh 
one last question. Uh, knowing what we know about the epigenetics, do you think this could be replicable with all psychedelic medicines, not just MDMA? I, I think it's possible. I think they're all going to have slightly different effects, but it. But it, we're we're going to do we're doing those studies and we're going to find out. So I think I think a lot of it comes down to safety, and I think that if we can understand how to amplify the safety cascades in in the brain through these different psychedelic techniques, then the ones that help us feel safe enough to reappraise our trauma is, and those are going to be the ones that have the biggest downstream impact on the epigenetic code. That's kind of like the going theory at this point that we have, but I think there, you know, we'll see, we'll find out, right. There's a lot of work still to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And yes. It's that, about study, that study was published in frontiers in frontiers of psychiatry in uh, February. Okay. I'm going to note all of this and make sure we have it in the show notes because I have very curious listeners that they love investigating into these uh, very important topics. Dr. Dave, really appreciate your time, your wisdom and everything you're doing and your work. Thank you for being with us and hope to have you back maybe to follow up in the next few months, maybe a year and follow your journey and your, you know, all the projects that you are undertaking. Um where can they find you? For those that listen to this on a podcast audio, where can they find you? Where can they follow your journey and your work for our listeners? Well, uh, and th thank you, first off, for having me. And I'd be happy to chat again. Um, for anybody who'd like to find me, uh, please hit me up on socials on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. David Rabin. Um, and uh, that's pretty much my handle across all my socials. And you can also find me on uh, my website at uh, www.drdave.io. Um, and then the most interesting place to find me is on my uh, show, show two shows, uh, one of which is called Your Brain Explained, and the other is, is The Psychedelic News, um, which is called The Psychedelic Report. And those are both on uh, Spotify and Apple and other podcasting streaming platforms near you. Wonderful. We'll have those links also added to the show notes. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Please uh, get in touch uh, with myself, Dr. Dave, and uh, don't be shy. Make sure you share your experiences, ask questions in the comments, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Psychedelic Conversations podcast is designed to educate, inform and expand awareness. For more information, please head over to psychedelicconversations.com. You can also share with your friends or leave a review so that we can reach more people. You can also join us in our private Facebook group to keep the conversation going. This show is for information purposes only and it is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.